Warning. The following podcast contains depictions of murder and historical racist attitudes which some listeners may find disturbing. It's the 4th of August, 1892. Apart from the blazing heat, it's a relatively ordinary day in Fall River, Massachusetts. A generally ordinary, unassuming place. A textile town for the most part. The wealthy mill owners dominate the town's politics, while their workers, who make up the bulk of the population, toil in unsafe conditions for low pay and excessively long hours. But today, it's not strikes or lockouts that are going to send this place into a frenzy. It's the events that are occurring right at this moment at 92 2nd Street. 92 2nd Street is a two-storey house in the middle-class area of town. However, the owner, a Mr Andrew Borden, is an incredibly wealthy man and comes from one of the town's oldest families. However, his wealth, unlike much of his family, is self-made and he lives in this house with his second wife, Abby, and his two adult daughters, Emma and Lizzie, and their live-in housekeeper, Bridget Sullivan, She's sometimes recorded as O'Sullivan, who they always call Maggie after their former domestic servant. Maggie is currently upstairs in her attic bedroom, recovering from a bout of food poisoning that has recently struck the whole family. Then, from downstairs, there's a scream. (coughs) And her employer's youngest daughter, Lizzie, calls to her in a horrified voice. Maggie, come quick! Father's dead! Someone came in and killed him! The housekeeper makes her way downstairs to the front sitting room where she discovers a grisly scene. Andrew Borden is slumped on the couch, his face rendered utterly unrecognisable after ten blows from a hatchet. His daughter sends the shocked servant to run for the family doctor. But she is unable to find him and instead has to leave a message with his wife. When she returns, she is sent to fetch a friend of Lizzie's. Well, in the meantime, a neighbour has come across to see what the commotion is and has now run across the street to a residence with a telephone and has summoned the police. The doctor arrives at the same time as Lizzie's friend, along with a single policeman, and he quickly determines that Andrew Borden has been killed within the last 30 minutes. Then Maggie, clearly distressed by the horrific scene, asks Lizzie where Mrs Borden, Lizzie's stepmother, is. To which Lizzie replies that Abby had gone upstairs to rest after returning from an errand. Maggie and a neighbour, Mrs Churchill, ascend the stairs to wake Abby and tell her of the distressing news, but instead come upon a second horrifying scene. Mrs Borden too is dead, also killed by multiple hatchet blows, and has clearly been dead for more than an hour. It's awful ghastly and before the day is out the press will go absolutely wild with speculation about who could have killed Andrew Borden and his wife and then an arrest is made but it's not one of the laboring working class or a beggar from down by the water no it's Andrew Borden's youngest daughter 32 year old Lizzie a respectable spinster who spends her days working for charity and teaches Sunday school She wouldn't have murdered her father, or would she? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Hello, 
fellow skeptics, thank you so very much for joining me today. As always, I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people on whose lands I am podcasting today, and I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Shout out also to Studio 4 at the State Library of Victoria, where I am currently recording. For more information or to book the studio yourself, please head to www.slv.vic.gov.au. The story of Lizzie Borden and the axe murders of Fall River is well known in the United States, but it's less commonly known in Australia. This isn't really surprising. After all, us Aussies have our own crazy history, including plenty of violent murders to choose from. But it is important to have an understanding of this story and its background before I dive in today. So for those who don't know the Lizzie Borden story, here's a quick crash course. Lizzie Borden was born to Andrew and Sarah Borden in Fall River, Massachusetts on the 19th of July, 1860. She was their second child after their other daughter, Emma, who had been born in 1851, or I should specify their second living child. They had had another daughter, but she had died in infancy. Sarah Borden died when Lizzie was about two years old, or she specified two and a half, and her father remarried in 1866 to Abby Gray, a woman who was about his own age, despite some later claims that she was a younger model, as the phrase goes. Now, Abby Gray was no wicked stepmother, although it's not really clear what her relationship with her stepdaughters was. Some say it was cordial, some say they disliked each other, but there's so much contradictory evidence that we just don't know. Regardless of whatever that relationship was, however, Lizzie was raised more by her sister Emma than her stepmother. Now, neither Emma nor Lizzie ever married, but both were regarded as fine, upstanding members of the community. They worked for charity, they were active in their church, and they appeared to be dutiful daughters, devoted to taking care of their father as all good spinsters should. However, all was not as it seemed in the Borden house. Andrew Borden was very wealthy. I'm talking extremely wealthy, huge levels of money. But he was known as a miser, and we'll get into that later. And the family didn't live as comfortably as they could have. Now, this meant more work for Andrew's unmarried adult daughters, as well as Maggie, the housekeeper. In the months before the murders, tension was building between Andrew and his daughters over his gifts of money and real estate to his wife's family, and there were several serious arguments about how much he was spending on the greys, while his daughters felt he wasn't giving them enough. To put Andrew's wealth in a bit of perspective, when he died, his estate was worth about 300000 American dollars at the time. Now, this is 9.6 million American dollars today, which makes it roughly the equivalent of $14.2 million in Australia. On the 4th of August, 1892, both Andrew and Abby were killed roughly an hour apart by multiple blows with a hatchet. In the house on the day of the murders were Lizzie, the housekeeper Maggie, and Lizzie's maternal uncle, John Morse, the brother of her mother. After an investigation, the police charged Lizzie with the crime and prosecutors alleged that she had murdered her stepmother and then her father for money. Abby had died before Andrew. That's an important point. Therefore, her family was not entitled to anything from Andrew's estate. It took more than a year after Lizzie's arrest for the case to go to trial and she was acquitted 
Her father's estate was divided equally between her and her sister Emma, although a settlement was paid uh, to settle claims made by Abby's family, and Lizzie remained in Fall River for the rest of her life. But despite this acquittal, she was shunned by Fall River society, although it's hard to know if this bothered her, and she died in 1927 at the age of 66. Her sister Emma died nine days later, and both were buried with their father in Oak Grove Cemetery. If you're a regular listener, you'll have heard me mention Lizzie Borden before in my bonus episode, Songs for Children. Around the time of Lizzie's trial in 1893, a rhyme about her was being printed in the Fall River newspapers and sung by children on the street. It went, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Andrew Borden is now dead. Lizzie hit him in the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. The first verse is still known today and remains a popular nursery rhyme in the United States. The second verse is less well known and wasn't sung much after Lizzie's trial, perhaps because she was acquitted. Unlike most nursery rhymes, it's very clear where this one came from, although we don't know who wrote it. It's sometimes attributed to the anonymous Mother Goose, but another theory is that it was created by the newspapers to help them sell copies while they were covering the trial. Whatever the truth, it makes it very clear what the prevailing view in Fall River was at the time. So why was Lizzie acquitted? And did she do it in the first place? To answer these questions, it is necessary to understand the social context of the world that Lizzie and her family inhabited. The United States, towards the end of what we know as the Victorian era, it's commonly called the Gilded Age in that country, was one of massive social and economic change. The immigrant and working classes were beginning to demand better wages and working conditions, as well as basic human rights, including suffrage, that is the right to vote, while the moneyed upper society were desperately clinging on to their power and privilege. This was also the era of the railroad baron, so lots of new money coming into the United States and coming into these moneyed societies who did not want them at all. Now, the United States had no hereditary aristocracy, And, of course, the the pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps myth feeds into this idea. But the wealthy families of America put a lot of store by how long their family, quote-unquote, had been in the country, especially if the arrival of their ancestors predated the start of the American Revolution in 1765. So these new money railroad barons, uh, mill owners like Andrew Borden, although Andrew Borden was a little different, as we'll see, They weren't usually welcome in the upper stratas of society, despite often having more money than these original moneyed people, because they hadn't been here long enough. They weren't old money. And these old money families thought themselves a cut above the more recent arrivals to the United States, no matter how much money they had. And they had some very aristocratic ideas about what they perceived as their natural place in the social order. While it is true that immigrants still made up a large population of the white labouring class in the United States in the 1890s, it's untrue to say that all the labourers were immigrants. This plays into the myths that the old money families were telling and were printing. Remember, history is only what's recorded. And for a long time, we've only had the records of certain groups and classes in society. 
Many of these labourers would have been born in the United States. Some of their families had probably been here as long as these old money families had. And also, not all of these labourers would have been white either. Black Americans also lived in Fall River and they would have participated at every level of society. But they've generally been written out of the area's history. Of course, black Americans have been written out of American history full stop in most cases, except where it benefits white America to include them. The point I suppose I'm trying to make here is that the old money families built the narrative of natural superiority on the same kind of classist, and not to mention racist, narratives as the British aristocracy. We have been here the longest. We were born to rule. We are entitled to power and prestige. And our comfort is a God-given right. Of course, this was all nonsense. The Bordens were one of these old money families. They had actually been one of the original families who had founded Fall River. Although Andrew Borden, Lizzie's father, had been born into a less successful branch of the family and he didn't have any inherited money. He had actually lived in... Not quite in poverty, but very close to it as a young man and was very aware of the consequences of not having money. However, over the years, he had actually done very well for himself. He'd built a substantial fortune in trading furniture and then caskets, and he'd later moved on to become a successful property developer. He also owned several mills, as I mentioned before. The main industry in Fall River was textiles. And he was the president of the Union Bank to top it off. So just to remind you of how much money this man had, when he was killed in 1892, his estate was worth the equivalent of 14.2 million Australian dollars. However, despite his enormous wealth, he was known to be incredibly frugal. This was possibly a throwback to the days where he did wonder whether he was paying the rent and having a meal. But he took it to an extreme. There's nothing wrong with saving money, of course, but Andrew Borden's obsession with never spending a cent if he could help it was, well, it caused a whole lot of problems. As I mentioned earlier, the Borden house wasn't as comfortable as it could have been, and I'm not just talking about a lack of expensive luxuries or a dearth of servants either, but a refusal by Andrew Borden to install systems which would have made life better for his family. So a good example here is indoor plumbing, which was common in wealthy households in Fall River at this time. It removed the need for smelly, disease-spreading chamber pots and meant that water for bathing, cooking and cleaning was readily available, eliminating the requirement for heavy buckets to be carried from outdoor pumps into homes, which made domestic tasks easier. It also meant that in many cases hot water could be on demand rather than having to spend time waiting for it to boil over a stove. In the Borden house, the task of collecting water would have been carried out not only by the live-in housekeeper, but by Emma and Lizzie and possibly Abby, although Mrs. Borden probably would have done less chores than her stepdaughters. Andrew Borden felt that indoor plumbing was an unnecessary expense, and so his daughters and the housekeeper had to continue collecting water from public or private pumps. It's not clear if there was a private pump on the Borden land and had to carry it back to the house, boil it on the stove to heat it for cooking or bathing, or for whatever else it might be needed for. And as anyone who has ever had to carry even a small bucket of water will know, that stuff is heavy, and it wasn't Andrew Borden who had to lug it about. 
Another thing Andrew Borden didn't spend money on frequently was food. He didn't let his family starve, but he'd rather bulk buy a large cut of meat, usually mutton, and have it boiled over and over again until all of it had been used. This was the way the very poor at the time ate, and it won't surprise you to hear that food poisoning was very common. According to the statistics I was able to find in Fall River, it was actually one of the most common causes of death for children under five. Now, Andrew was wealthy enough to have brought fresh food, but like indoor plumbing, he didn't see why he needed to. In the week before he and his wife were murdered, all four Bordens and their housekeeper were struck down by a horrible bout of food poisoning after having eaten mutton that had been reheated for each meal for five days and just kept on the stove in between times. Lizzie and Bridget Sullivan, the housekeeper, were still unwell on the day Andrew and Abby were murdered, although, as I mentioned, Sullivan was in a far worse state. Where Lizzie was still experiencing only some mild discomfort, Sullivan was ill enough that she'd taken to her bed. Given she would have worked harder than the rest of them put together, despite being unwell, and wouldn't have been allowed the same amount of time to rest and recuperate, I'm not surprised she took longer to recover. This bout of food poisoning probably wouldn't have been significant. As I mentioned, it was very common. But it is worth pausing here, both for the fact that it happened barely a week before the murders and because Andrew's wife, Abby, was known to be deeply afraid that the family would be poisoned. Andrew Borden was not a well-liked man in Fall River, although there's no evidence he was a target for passionate hatred either. In any city, successful businessmen like Andrew Borden will be loathed on principle by a portion of the population, and he probably wouldn't have been well-liked by the workers in his mills who worked long hours in dangerous conditions for little pay. His Borden relatives may have well thought he was beneath them, given he had made his own wealth, shock horror, and didn't live in the fashionable neighbourhood that they did. However, I couldn't find anything in the records indicating that anyone had ever tried to do him harm before he was murdered in 1892. He was a miser, certainly, and there was a tension in the household over money and the uncomfortable living standards, but... Abby's fears about poison seem a little irrational in this context. Of course, there may have been other things that didn't make the records of the time. But had Andrew Borden come to any serious harm, or had anyone attempted to do him harm, it most likely would have been reported. Newspapers then, as now, loved a gory story. And the assault or attempted assault of a rich businessman who came from one of the city's old money families would have been hot news. But there is an interesting point to be made here. A few days before the murders, and around the time the family became ill, Lizzie was suspected of purchasing prussic acid from the local pharmacist. Now, prussic acid is a type of cyanide diluted in water, and it's a deadly poison. The compound it is derived from, hydrogen cyanide, was most famously used in the 20th century by the Nazis in the gas chambers of the concentration camps, and even the Victorians, who were rather infamous for putting all manner of toxic concoctions into their bodies, whether knowingly or unknowingly, knew that prussic acid was dangerous. It had previously been used in murders and suicides, partly because it was freely available as rat poison from the drugstore. 
Some speculate that the bout of food poisoning was not actually food poisoning at all, but an actual poisoning, and was Lizzie's first attempt to kill her father and stepmother. For the record, Lizzie denied that she'd ever brought prussic acid and said she'd simply inquired about it to clean a sealskin coat, although it was not used in cleaning and, according to testimony from a medical examiner, it had no antiseptic properties. But if she had bought the poison and had slipped it into the mutton with the intention of killing her father and stepmother and moving all suspicion away from herself, she was taking a huge risk. Cyanide is extremely toxic and she could have killed the whole family, including herself. And depending on how much mutton someone ate would depend on how much cyanide they consumed. It doesn't take much to kill someone, but if someone had eaten more or less than usual that night, Lizzie could have ended up killing the wrong person. I also think it's worth pointing out that the Victorians knew how to test for cyanide. So, if everyone had been sick and only Andrew and Abby had died, for argument's sake, food would have been tested. Food was tested in their house even after they were murdered with an axe to check for poison. The poison would have been found, and it wouldn't have been hard to trace Lizzie back to the drugstore buying the prussic acid. So, for this reason, and for the ones I've just mentioned, I don't think the mutton was poisoned by Lizzie. Remember, this stuff had been on the stove for five days and was being heated, cooled and reheated over and over and over again for each meal. It would have been riddled with bacteria. I'm actually surprised they survived that bout of food poisoning at all. It's also worth remembering that we don't know if Lizzie did end up purchasing the prussic acid at all. And she may have left the pharmacy when the pharmacist explained that it couldn't be used for cleaning. At her trial, her defence team successfully prevented the prosecution from presenting this exchange, either of words or of poison, to the jury. After they argued, and the presiding judge agreed, that the incident was too remote to be of any consequence to the proceedings. Personally, I think the judge made the right choice, as it's still unclear whether Lizzie bought the poison at all, And more to the point, Andrew and Abby didn't die of cyanide poisoning. No toxins were found in their stomachs during autopsy. And none of the food in the house, which as I mentioned was tested for poison, given the whole family had recently been ill, came back positive for cyanide or anything else for that matter. Despite Abby's fears that her husband, and by extension her family, would be poisoned, I think it much more likely that the bout of serious illness was caused by the unhygienic preparation of the mutton rather than being Lizzie's first attempt to kill her father and stepmother. I'm going to take a little break here and when I get back we're going a little deeper into Lizzie and the events of the 4th of August 1892. Being a woman in 1892, even a wealthy one, wasn't great. And being an unmarried woman in 1892 was even worse. That is, if you believe the social commentary. Some women, Lizzie Borden among them, were forging identities for themselves outside marriage, but their ability to participate in the world was still heavily restricted. In the United States and other parts of the world which had a heavy European influence, and the US, whatever it may have claimed then or claims now, has always been heavily influenced by European society, it was believed that a woman's highest calling was to be a wife and mother. Within the middle and upper classes of society, 
This meant finding a husband and settling down to a life of domestic bliss, managing a household and not bothering yourself with anything more taxing than charity work, going to the opera or the theatre and hosting afternoon teas or the occasional ball or house party. For working class women, getting married and having children was also expected but they also had to work often upwards of 12-hour days with no social security net, no maternity leave, and could be fired by their employers simply for being pregnant. Now, Lizzie, of course, didn't have to worry about such things. She was the daughter of an extraordinarily wealthy man, even though they lived a very middle-class existence. Within her social set, however, the fact that she was unmarried and given she was 32, was unlikely to ever be married, according to the social ideas of the time, this would have been seen as a moral failing. She had fallen short of her true calling as a woman and was destined to be a lonely old maid, reliant on the generosity of her father. These ideas would probably not have been spoken of openly, but they were part of the social fabric of the time, and Lizzie, and probably her sister Emma, would have been very aware of them. However, despite never getting married, Lizzie was able to meet society's expectations of her in another way. Both Borden sisters had had a very religious upbringing and Lizzie was quite active in both her church and many of the local charities. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, she taught Sunday school and she was a secretary for the Fall River branch of the Christian Endeavour Society, which was an evangelical group whose mission was to as they said, bring the gospel to the immigrant class of the United States. I just want to pause here and say I find this so incredibly ironic. Most of the immigrants to the United States at this time were coming from Ireland, Britain or Germany. Now, there's people of all religions in all those places, of course. But at this time, most of them would have been Catholics, Anglicans, Presbyterians or Lutherans. So very much Christians and probably didn't need the Christian Endeavour Society coming to preach the gospel to them. But I have digressed. Lizzie was also very active in the temperance movement, and she volunteered for the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. Now, today, this charity has a slightly different name, and it's focused on helping children from a lower socioeconomic background gain an education. At the time Lizzie was volunteering there, the purpose of the charity was to deliver baskets of fruit and bouquets of flowers to poor families. Now, yes, this was seen as charity at the time, but it has nasty overtures of slum tourism, in my opinion. And it was less about helping these poor families get access to what they needed, such as sanitation, healthcare, and better working conditions, and was more a chance for rich ladies to feel good about themselves by doing charitable works that didn't upset the status quo. These were seen as appropriate activities for women like Lizzie, well brought up middle or upper class unmarried ladies who dedicated their lives to charity and caring for their aging parents were often described as Protestant nuns. In this way, Lizzie was an upstanding member of her community, so no one could believe it when she was charged with the vicious murder of her father and stepmother. In looking at the Lizzie Borden case today, there's still some of this lingering prejudice. How could such a good woman kill her father and stepmother? And so brutally. It's this last part that seems to fascinate people. And Lizzie has posthumously been diagnosed with everything from schizophrenia to epilepsy to explain why she killed her father and stepmother. I should note that these diagnoses 
if I can even call them that, do nothing except perpetuate stigma and harmful stereotypes about the people living with complex mental or physical health conditions. And there's no evidence that Lizzie had any of the conditions that a succession of 20th and 21st century psychologists and historians have labelled her with. So, with that out of the way and the social context firmly in place, let's consider what happened on the morning of the 4th of August, 1892. I'm not going to give a blow-by-blow account here, but I do want to set the scene. Now, much of what I'm going to tell you now comes from Lizzie's own testimony at the inquest into the deaths of her father and stepmother and from the police reports from the time. On the day in question, Lizzie said she wasn't feeling well and given the heat and the nasty bout of food poisoning the family had suffered recently, this seems very reasonable. She came downstairs later than usual, a few minutes before nine. Her father and her visiting uncle, John Morse, had already left the house and Abby had instructed the housekeeper, Sullivan, to wash the outside windows. Abby had gone up to the guest bedroom to make the bed and to tidy up as John Moores had stayed overnight. Up until this point, the whereabouts of everyone in the house, including the two victims and also the three later suspects, can be proven. This means that the only people in the house after nine o'clock were Abby Borden and Lizzie Borden. It's what happened after nine that is harder to pinpoint exactly. We know that Abby Borden was murdered sometime between 9.30 and 10.30 that morning and she was murdered in the guest room where her body was found. The first blow with the hatchet that killed her occurred initially as she was facing her attacker and the following 18 blows were delivered to the back of her head after she fell. At the inquest, Lizzie stated that she was in the kitchen downstairs doing ironing when her stepmother was being murdered upstairs, yet she said she heard nothing. The guest room was directly above the kitchen, and while axe murders are not quite the screaming gore fests modern horror movies portray them as, they're not quiet affairs either. Had Lizzie been downstairs at the time of the murder, She should have heard a loud crash as her stepmother fell, followed by the sound of continuous blows and probably heavy breathing or grunts of exertion as her killer continued beating her. She describes nothing like this in her testimony, despite swearing she was inside the house all morning. I think it's also worth returning to the fact that Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack and... There were no defensive injuries on her arms or hands. Had she been attacked by a stranger, she would have almost certainly raised her arms to try and defend herself, no matter how futile the attempt when being attacked with an axe. And it would have also been unlikely that she would have let a stranger get close enough to surprise her with an axe in the first place. The fact that she didn't have time to raise her hands suggests her killer was someone she knew who she didn't fear getting close to her and who was then able to surprise her with a sudden blow. This makes the prime suspects her husband, Andrew, her stepdaughters, Emma and Lizzie, and the housekeeper, Sullivan. We know three of these four suspects were out of the house that morning, with Lizzie being the only one inside at the time of the attack. Some of Lizzie's defenders claim that someone else could have broken in. And while technically possible... It's also highly unlikely. 
During the inquest, Lizzie testified that she habitually locked the front door when she was home alone. And we know it was locked from the inside when Andrew Borden came home around 10.30 because he had to get Sullivan to let him in. For someone to have broken in, they would have had to have broken the lock, which would have probably broken the door too, and then have made their way upstairs to kill Abby without being noticed. And the position of the kitchen in the Borden house means Lizzie would have had a clear view of the entire downstairs area, including the front door. So she would have been the first person to see anyone had someone broken in. She couldn't see the back door, but Maggie, who was outside, could. And during her testimony, she never mentioned anything untoward happening or anyone trying to get in through the back door. After murdering Abby, the killer cleaned up extensively. And we know this because the only blood found in the room was the dried blood on Abby's corpse. Now, today we'd be able to prove this with much more certainty. But the forensics in the 1890s was all but non-existent, to be frank. But we can assume that a cleanup occurred due to the type of injuries Abby received. She had multiple open head wounds from the hatchet and head wounds bleed profusely. Anyone who has ever even had just a small cut on their head will be able to tell you just how much you bleed when you get hit in the head. So if we are to believe Lizzie's claim that she was downstairs, heard nothing, and was completely innocent, not only would she have to have missed someone breaking into her house, probably breaking down her door, going upstairs, murdering her stepmother, but then she would have had to not heard or notice the killer cleaning up after themselves either. This is stretching the bounds of possibility. For this reason, I'm confident in saying that Lizzie killed her stepmother. The only other person nearby was the housekeeper, who was outside washing windows when the attack occurred. The location of the killing is very significant too, as resetting the guest room was one of Lizzie's regular duties. But since Abby knew her stepdaughter was not feeling well, it seems that Abby went to do it. So when Lizzie came upstairs to the guest room after breakfast, it's easy to imagine that Abby thought Lizzie had come to help. Perhaps Lizzie already had the axe at this point and had raised it to deliver a blow to her stepmother's head when Abby turned around. After Lizzie had killed Abby and while she was cleaning up, Sullivan came inside. She was hot from cleaning the outside windows and feeling sick from the lingering food poisoning. Her entry into the house is significant because it clearly demonstrates that she was outside while Abby was murdered. Andrew Borden had just recently returned from his outing and had tried the door only to find it locked. We know this was about 10.30. In Lizzie's previous testimony, she had said she was downstairs the entire time her stepmother was being murdered. However, she admitted she had gone upstairs before her father came home as she wasn't feeling well herself and wanted to lie down. She then heard the bell and went to let her father in, but Sullivan reached the door first. This particular point that Lizzie was coming down the stairs when Andrew Borden came home was corroborated by Sullivan, This is very, very significant testimony. The Borden house, like a lot of middle-class Victorian homes, did not have separate entrances for all the rooms off a communal space. 
Hallways and large landings were luxuries reserved for the upper class. So it was not uncommon to have to go through someone else's room to reach one's own in these houses. The bedrooms on the second story of the Borden house were set out as follows. Immediately opposite the stairs and off a very, very small landing was the guest room, while a door to the right led to Lizzie's room. Emma's room was behind the guest room or Lizzie's room. There was a door from either room to get to it. And Andrew and Abby's room was at the back of the house. There was a door leading from Lizzie's room to this bedroom. But during the inquest, it was revealed that this door was locked and that Lizzie didn't have a key and that there was also a writing desk habitually positioned in front of it. Instead, to reach their room, Andrew and Abby went up the back stairs, which also led to the attic. Now, this might seem like a whole lot of unimportant detail, but actually it's super important because anyone coming up the main stairs to get to Lizzie's or Emma's room or the guest's room would have been able to see Abby's body from the stairs. They wouldn't have even needed to reach the landing. Lizzie could not have been on the second level of the house without seeing her stepmother's body. It's impossible given the layout of the property. There's another important detail here. When Abby's body was later found by Sullivan and the neighbour, Mrs Churchill, who I should point out now, no relation to the later British Prime Minister, the door to the guest room was open. If someone had broken in and murdered Abby, why would they have left the door open and risked someone coming up and seeing her? Especially if we assume they were also lying in wait for Andrew too. Lizzie, on the other hand, would have known that no one would come up those stairs. She and Emma were responsible for maintaining their own rooms and the guest room. And her father had no reason to ever come up those stairs, given he couldn't get to his own room that way. Sullivan too would have had no reason to go up the main stairs unless summoned, as her own attic bedroom was only accessible by the same back stairs that Andrew and Abby used to reach their bedroom. In short, by leaving the door open... Lizzie ensured that Abby would be found by the first person she sent up the stairs when she was ready. It's devious, but it's a very clever way to deflect blame. When Andrew Borden arrived home, he went upstairs to his own room using the back stairs so he wouldn't have seen his wife's body. When he came back downstairs, he did ask his daughter where his wife was. And at this point, Lizzie knew exactly where she was. But instead, she told her father that Abby had gone out after receiving a note to call on a sick friend. She told this story at the inquest too, and the police actually offered a reward for the person who had sent the note to come forward, but no one ever did. I'm of the opinion that Lizzie made this story up just to ensure that her father didn't go looking for his wife and potentially head up those stairs. Sometime between 10.30 and 10.45, Andrew came back downstairs and lay down on the couch for a nap. That nap became his final slumber and he was murdered with multiple blows from a hatchet sometime prior to Lizzie calling for help just after 11 o'clock. Once again, the scene of the crime had been cleaned up and the only blood was on Andrew's corpse. The only conceivable suspect in the murder is Lizzie. Sullivan, the only other person alive in the house at the time, had got Lizzie's permission to go upstairs and rest because she was feeling ill. 
and was in her attic bedroom from the time she let Andrew Borden in to when Lizzie called her to tell her that Andrew had been murdered. This time, Lizzie claimed she was out of the house in a barn on the property looking for a fishing sinker as she intended to go fishing with friends in a couple of days. She claimed she returned to the house and found her father dead. If we believe Lizzie's story, then we must believe that either a second assailant entered the house and bludgeoned Andrew to death without knowing his wife had been killed in a similar manner upstairs and then quickly left, or that the same person who killed Abby had successfully managed to evade detection for an hour or more and then murdered Andrew before leaving the house, all without leaving a trace of their presence. To be honest, sceptics, neither of these scenarios strikes me as plausible. And I think it's time to pause for another break, but don't put your magnifying glasses and deerstalker caps away just yet. There's a whole lot more to this story than meets the eye. And we are back. Now, the question of Lizzie's guilt or innocence is still a hot topic today, but I think the evidence of her guilt is overwhelming. She was the only person in the house both times. She was familiar with the layout of the property, and there were also pieces of physical evidence that suggested her guilt as well. When police were called, they moved the bodies and then performed a very cursory search of the house. Ostensibly, this was because Lizzie wasn't feeling well, but I think there was more to it than this. The social attitudes of the day would also have been at play. Even among these men, the idea that a woman would have committed such a brutal murder would have been unthinkable. During this quick search, however, police did uncover some interesting pieces of evidence. The first was a bucket full of bloody rags, but when questioned about them, Lizzie said they were her menstrual rags. The police were horrified and didn't seize the rags as evidence or investigate them further. Now, I think this is particularly incompetent, given by this stage everyone knew the killer had cleaned up after themselves and the presence of blood-stained rags at a murder scene should have been considered suspicious at the very least. The other thing they found was a hatchet head with a break in the handle that looked fresh. The head had had ash and dust deliberately applied to it, unlike other tools in the basement, to make it seem like it had been there as long as the other tools had, and police didn't find the broken handle. The hatchet was the same size and shape as the one used to kill Abby and Andrew, but when Lizzie was questioned about the presence of the hatchet, she again fell back on a gendered answer. The tools in the basement belonged to her father. She didn't use them and supposed the hatchet must have broken while her father was using it one day and he hadn't got around to fixing it. The police did take the hatchet head as evidence but made no effort to search for the handle. At Lizzie's trial, the prosecution would claim that the handle had been discarded by Lizzie as it would have been stained with blood. Now, to this day, that hatchet handle has never been recovered. So this claim remains one of the many unknowns in the Lizzie Borden case. 
And there were further strange anomalies too. That night, a police guard at the house saw Lizzie and her friend Alice Russell, who had decided to stay overnight with Lizzie, leave the house and go into the basement, carrying what he describes as a slops pail. They deposited something into the sink and began cleaning it, but the officer didn't make his presence known and didn't go to investigate what it was they were washing. In the days after the murder, Lizzie and Emma, the latter of whom had returned to Fall River in a hurry after receiving a telegram about the murders, were seen burning a dress. At Lizzie's trial, a dressmaker testified that the dress had got paint on it and had been ruined, which was why Lizzie was burning it. We can presume that the dressmaker saw the dress herself. Perhaps Lizzie had even taken it to her to see if the paint could have been removed and her testimony wasn't challenged by the prosecution. At first glance, it does seem odd that someone would burn a dress that simply had paint on it, but it is worth remembering two things. Firstly, Lizzie was a very wealthy woman. Spending time getting paint out of a dress would have been beneath her when she could afford to buy another. And also, paint to then wasn't like paint now. There was no chucking it in the wash and just getting it out. That stuff would have stained. So I don't think burning the gown is too suspicious in this regard, but I admit it certainly does not look good under the circumstances. However, despite all the unknowns, what is very clear is that Lizzie, and by extension Emma, stood to gain immensely from her father's death. Because Abby died first, Lizzie and Emma automatically became Andrew's heiresses, as he didn't have a will. Now, those with good memories will recall that Andrew was a man of significant means in 1892. And when he died, his estate was valued at 300,000 American dollars. Again, the equivalent of 9.6 million American today, roughly 14.2 million in Australian dollars. In other words serious money, especially given that a woman could inherit in her own right in the United States in 1892, unlike in the UK. But did Lizzie really kill her father for money? The population of Fall River seems to have believed it, despite some of them being on the jury that acquitted Lizzie of the crime. Remember what I said earlier about Lizzie being seen in Fall River as the epitome of a good woman? If she'd been convicted of murdering her father, this would have shattered the comfortable illusion that people had at the time about what good, white, wealthy, unmarried Christian women were capable of. If good women, like Lizzie Borden, could kill, and for something as base as money, which they were supposed to have no desire for or knowledge about, what else could they kill for? This may sound exaggerated, and in some ways it is, But it is important to put yourself in the time. Control only works when the group of people in power can maintain the structures that favour them and oppress others. In Fall River, in 1892, one of these structures was sexism, which was reinforced by laws which restricted what women could do, how they could dress and what services and supports they could access. Finding Lizzie Borden guilty of murder would have shaken those structures to their foundation because it would have proved they only worked so long as women were made to believe they did. 
it was much easier for the wealthy residents of Fall River to acquit and then shun her, which they did, than convict her and risk the social fabric they relied on beginning to unravel. The murder also wasn't quite as sudden as it's often portrayed either. Tension had been building for months, possibly even more than a year, in the Borden household about how Andrew spent his money. In my opinion, it was his money, and he was entitled to spend it however he damn well pleased. But I can see how, given that Lizzie and Emma were very dependent on their father, they would have been alarmed and angered by how much he was spending on Abby's family. In the modern day, it would have been easy for Emma and Lizzie to forge their own paths. But in 1892, they were quite restricted in what they were able to do. And their father's money would have been their only lifeline. That doesn't excuse what Lizzie did. And it isn't anything like a mitigating factor. But it's an important social point. I also think the tension over money was much more intense than either Lizzie or Emma ever described. According to Lizzie's testimony at the inquest into the deaths of Abby and Andrew, about five years before they died, Andrew had brought a house for Abby's half-sister and this had caused a rift in the family. Lizzie, who had called Abby mother up until that point, she had only been two when her own mother died after all, started calling her Mrs. Borden and described having had a difference of opinion with her stepmother over Andrew's treatment of Abby's half-sister. The sisters asked their father for a property themselves and he agreed to sell them Grandfather Borden's house, as Lizzie described it, which was the house Emma and Lizzie had lived in before their mother died. Now, I say sell, but accounts do vary on whether it was sold to them for a dollar or whether Andrew simply gifted them the property. But they owned it and they leased it out for five years before they sold it back to Andrew for $5,000 just a couple of months before the murders. A month before the murders, in July of 1892, there was a serious argument in the family about money and both the sisters took an abrupt vacation and they didn't return until just a few days before Andrew and Abby's deaths or about a week just in time to get food poisoning. On returning to Fall River Lizzie actually didn't go home immediately. She spent a few days either at a rooming house or with friends. The details here are unclear before she went back to her father's house and again just in time to get food poisoning. I think it was during this vacation that Lizzie decided to kill at least her stepmother. Whether or not Emma knew about it, I don't know, but I think it unlikely. Regardless, I believe the Borden household was probably quite a toxic environment for some time and that Lizzie's anger and fear over what was going to happen to her if she no longer had access to her father's money solidified during her time in New Bedford into a plan to get rid of Abby Borden. Now, Andrew was 69 when he died, so he was unlikely to marry again if his second wife died, although it certainly wasn't impossible. And it also wasn't impossible that he may have continued looking after Abby's family, even if she was dead. This may have influenced Lizzie's decision to kill her father as well and secure an inheritance she felt she rightfully deserved, without the risk of another stepmother entering the picture. It's also possible she wanted to ensure that Andrew didn't spend any further money on anyone else. And the best way to do that would have been to kill him. Of course, I am speculating at this point. And I do have to point out, once again, that Lizzie was acquitted at her trial, 
but I still think that she was guilty as sin. She was angry at her father and stepmother. She was dependent on her father's money. And if Andrew died before Abby, Lizzie, and Emma, it must be said, wouldn't be entitled to anything. I think this is actually another piece of the puzzle, given Abby was killed first, and very obviously so. This ensured that when Andrew was killed an hour later, his daughters were his heiresses, and Abby's family were removed from the picture. And Lizzie certainly made good use of the fortune she and Emma inherited after her acquittal. They brought a large house in the fancy neighbourhood of The Hill in Fall River, employed a full staff, they took regular trips to the opera and the theatre, and Lizzie loved throwing lavish parties for the theatrical stars of the day. Despite being shunned by Fall River society, Lizzie never left the area, and in a strange irony, she tended her father's grave until she was prevented from doing so by her age. Now, Lizzie and Emma died within nine days of each other in 1927, but they hadn't lived together or spoken since 1905, which I actually think is a bit sad. They'd always been close, with Lizzie looking at Emma more as a mother than a sister, and it seems a hard way for things to end between them. Emma had actually moved to New Hampshire in 1925. She'd left Fall River, both for health reasons and to avoid renewed publicity after a book was published about the murders. It is worth noting once again that Emma was not in Fall River at the time. And while she benefited financially from her father and stepmother's deaths, there is absolutely zero evidence which ties her to the crimes. And it also seems unlikely that Lizzie ever confided in her what she was planning to do. She returned to Fall River twice, once for Lizzie's funeral and then in death, where she and Lizzie were buried side by side in the family plot. In a final twist to this tale, the plot is the same one in which their father and stepmother were buried in 1892 and where their mother was also buried after her death in 1863. The third child of Andrew and Sarah, Lizzie and Emma's mother, who died young, is also buried there. And the grave is actually still being maintained today after Lizzie left money for its care in perpetuity. Well, I'm going to take another break here. I think we all need it. And then I've got just a few more loose ends to tie up before we finish today. Hey, welcome back, skeptics. Before we close, I want to note that Lizzie was never the only suspect in the murders, and police did look at the two others who were in the house that day. Lizzie and Emma's maternal uncle, John Morse, was questioned by police and almost killed by a mob on the day of the murders on the belief that he had been the murderer. He had stayed overnight at the Borden house the day of the murders and had been discussing business with Andrew Borden. According to Lizzie's testimony, he visited the house every three months or so and usually stayed the night. And there really is nothing terribly suspicious about a man coming to visit his former brother-in-law and his nieces. He was not in the house when Abby and Andrew were murdered and police were able to confirm his alibi. He also stood to gain nothing except the loss of a potentially lucrative business deal by murdering Andrew and had no connection with Abby or reason to kill her either. Another suspect in the murders was Sullivan. There was initial public speculation that she may have been involved, but this quickly waned once police confirmed she was outside when Abby Borden was killed and upstairs in the attic at the time Andrew was murdered. 
Like Morse, she stood to gain absolutely nothing from murdering the pair. And if she had done it, she would not have been afforded the same social protections as Lizzie. And even if she had done it and avoided the gallows, she would have been unemployed and probably without a reference, and her notoriety would have made it hard for her to work again. After the murders, Sullivan didn't stay on with the Borden sisters, but left and took work elsewhere. She later married a man she met while working in Montana and settled there, and she was actually the last person standing from the Borden case. She died in Montana in 1948. But that wasn't the end of Sullivan's story. She became posthumously famous after the publication of the historical fiction novel Lizzie in 1984, which portrayed her and Lizzie as lovers who murdered Abby and Andrew when they discovered their secret. The author then presented this fictitious idea as a serious theory in 1999 and claimed that Sullivan had confessed to her sister on her deathbed that she had lied on the stand to protect Lizzie. This seems highly unlikely. First of all, while there were rumours later in her life that Lizzie was a lesbian, probably helped along by the fact that she remained unmarried and the prejudice towards unmarried women at the time, there was no such speculation about Sullivan. She never lived with a woman friend and there was no gossip or speculation in the area that she settled in with her husband that their marriage was a front. Secondly, the only lie she told under oath was that she helped Andrew remove his boots and put on his slippers on the morning before he was murdered, where crime scene photos clearly show Andrew wearing boots. But whether this was a lie or simply a misremembering of the facts, we will never know. As for a deathbed confession, this was a popular feature in novels at the time, but it didn't frequently occur in real life. Ultimately, the only person who could have committed these crimes is Lizzie. She was also the only person who had motive to do so. The brutality of them has shocked generations, but it's not really so strange she chose to use a hatchet. In a time where everyone had to chop their own firewood, such tools would have been readily available. There were at least three axes, including the hatchet head police seized on the day of the murders, found in the basement when the Borden house was searched. The horrible reality is that Lizzie wanted her father's money, and if he wasn't going to spend it in a way that guaranteed her the future she wanted, she was going to take it from him in the only way that she could. In closing today, I think Cara Robertson in her article Representing Miss Lizzie, sums it up best. And I quote, The ordinary lives of ordinary people are more than sufficient to explain cold-blooded murder. Perhaps that is the most disturbing fact of all, and one of the reasons why this crime remains so interesting today. Crimes aren't committed by monsters. They're committed by people. Lizzie Borden was constrained by the social norms that ultimately acquitted her of murder, but murdering her father and stepmother wasn't an act of rage against the system or a desperate attempt to free herself from patriarchal tyranny. She wasn't a wolf in sheep's clothing. She was a person, a human being with emotions, ideas, dreams and ambitions who decided to get rid of those that were standing in her way. Ultimately, despite the suggestions over the years since the murders and since the acquittal, she was not insane, she was not ill, and she really wasn't all that extraordinary either. She was a perfectly ordinary, completely human person who committed a very human act and one that is still committed today, and she did it for very human reasons. Thanks for listening. 
As always, you can get in touch at my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. Or on my social media. I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Next episode, we're getting a little lighter and celebrating International Cat Day with a round-the-world trip following the stories of black panthers seen lurking miles from home in Australia, the UK and the USA. But where did these cats come from? And do they even exist at all? Find out next time on The Skeptical Historian. (laughs) The Skeptical Historian is research produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in my research by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects by Adobe Creative Cloud, used under the Adobe Software License Agreement. Pixabay, used under Creative Commons 4.0 International License. And Epidemic Sound, used under an Epidemic Sound Individual License. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was also used under this license. Podcast hosting is by Fusebox. See you next time, skeptics.